Let's join together as we pray. We've prayed, Heavenly Father, that your word would go to the ends of the earth and accomplish that which you have sent it to do and we pray that it will accomplish that here this morning as we think about it and meditate upon it together that you might equip us and strengthen us in the knowledge of your will and make us strong in the Lord and the strength of your might. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our first of study of the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation 1 to 3 last week, our journey took us to the church at Ephesus, the church that had fallen down on its responsibility, its first responsibility to love the Lord Jesus. This morning we're leaving Ephesus behind and we travel some 75 kilometres north up the coast of modern Turkey to reach the ancient city of Smyrna, one that is now known as Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R. As cities go, Smyrna was one of the most beautiful of the ancient world. With wonderful topography, magnificent architecture. As we approach the city on our tourist bus, we'll first be struck by the side of Mount Pagos, rising out of the Aegean Sea. And near the pinnacle of the mountain, you will see and notice a ring of the finest public buildings in all the Roman Empire. If, as a tourist, you'd mentioned this site, the citizens of Smyrna's hearts would have swollen with pride and they may have taken you on a tour of the famous, the world-famous Crown of Smyrna. Ancient Smyrna was the Paris of its day. Wealthy, stylish, opulent, Everything was measured by a standard of wealth that was high. Everyone was clamouring after greater symbols of status. And it was, within the Roman Empire, a free city. And as such, it owed much loyalty to Rome. So loyal were the citizens of Smyrna to Rome that history tells us of one winter when word came back of Roman soldiers freezing at the battlefront that the people of Smyrna stripped the clothes off their own backs and sent them to the troops on the front line. Like all Roman cities though, Smyrna was saturated with paganism. At the foot of the giant Mount Pagos stood the temple of Zeus, the father of the gods. Along the golden street we'll find shrines to Apollo, the sun god, Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, and Escalupius, the god of medicine. Young people today in our culture, as in every day, are very impressed by designer labels on clothing. Apparently, clothes are no good unless they bear the mark of some famous fashion line. 
And the young people of Smyrna knew this too. Thousands of years before the modern fashion houses even existed, for Nike was also there, the goddess of victory, and depicted as winged and carrying a wreath or a palm of victory. The motif of the modern Nike clothing company is based upon the image of that ancient goddess. Commercially, uh, the city of Smyrna was famous for one product, myrrh. So synonymous was the city with myrrh that it drew its name from the product, which means bitter. Myrrh is a resin which is harvested harvested from a shrubby kind of tree with a bitter taste. It's invariably associated with suffering and sorrow. And that's fitting for the church at Smyrna. It was a suffering church, constantly subjected to persecution by the pagans because of their resistance to idols, by the Romans, because they refused to acknowledge the emperor as God, and by the Jews, who were constantly stirring trouble for the believers there. If Ephesus was a backsliding church, Smyrna was a suffering church, a persecuted church. And so there are lessons for us in this passage concerning tribulation and trial and much to gain from it. We begin first in this message to the church at Smyrna by noting how Jesus described himself. In verse 8, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now we've heard this before. These words we found given to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. But we learn two truths from Jesus' own description of himself here. For a start, Jesus reminds the church at Smyrna that he is eternal. He is the first and the last In chapter 1, Jesus had said those very words to John, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And we could note that the writer of the Hebrews speaks of Jesus as being the same yesterday, today and forever in chapter 13 and having neither beginning of days nor end of life in chapter 7. Why does Jesus speak like this to the church at Smyrna? Because he wants to comfort his church. The one who is the first and last speaks words of truth to anyone who experiences or is facing suffering for his sake. He is the first and he is the last. He has the first word and the last word on everything. He is eternal. And the church, though it suffers, will never ever be separated from him. 
And then Jesus speaks of himself, secondly, as victorious. He tells them that he died and came to life. As we've noted before, we live and we die. The cricket world has again been shocked by another death of another cricketer. But even sportsmen and women are not immune from death. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus came back to life again and because he lives, he offers victory to those who put their trust in him. His victory, his resurrection victory, belongs to his church. They too are victorious. And so it's the eternal and victorious Jesus who speaks to the church that suffers at Smyrna. It's the eternal and victorious Jesus who speaks to encourages to encourage these believers in their suffering with the truth that he is eternal and victorious. Death cannot defeat him and death did not defeat him. The grave could not hold him and the grave will not hold them. And these things are said to a people facing death for his sake that they might gain the comfort of knowing the presence of a living and victorious Saviour. Second, in his message to the church at Smyrna, we'll note how Jesus commended them. He did this in three ways. First, he commended them for the tribulation they endured. He said in verse 9, I know your tribulation. The church in Smyrna was being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. A Smyrna took great pride in the fact that they beat, out, they beat ten other cities for the privilege of building a temple to the emperor, Tiberius, in 26 AD. The believers in Smyrna refused to worship the emperor by saying, Caesar is Lord, obviously, for believers only Jesus is Lord. And so the unwillingness of the believers at Smyrna to worship Caesar branded them as atheists and unpatriotic. It's likely that like the believers in Pakistan, these believers were ostracised, work became limited and unavailable, opportunities for economic trade vanished and they were excluded from society. All this, the tribulation they endured. Then he commended them for the poverty they experienced. He said of them, I know your poverty. Now as we've heard, Smyrna was a wealthy city. And it's strange that a group should be singled out as being poor in that wealthy city. Why was that? Well, some suggestions are these. Perhaps the believers belong to the lower ranks of society. Just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians of the Corinthians, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Or perhaps the believers' love for the poor caused them to give so generously that they became poor in doing so. But those suggestions still, I don't think, adequately explain the reason for their tribulation, which is mentioned along with their poverty. More likely, I think, is the possibility 
that the believers refuse to conduct their business practices like everyone else in Smyrna. They did not participate in underhanded deals and they lost business. Non-believers had negative attitudes towards them and they simply refused to engage in any kind of business with them and that led to their material poverty in the end. But despite that, did you see how Jesus said of them, but you were rich. See, what Jesus values in terms of riches is not the same, not even the same ballpark as what the world thinks is riches. The world is totally sold in material riches, whereas Jesus says, you are poor, but you are rich. John Stott says here, of course, Jesus cares deeply about the poor, the needy and the pressed. Scripture makes that plain. At the same time, it adds that those who lack much of the world's goods are still rich towards God, rich in faith, rich in good deeds and have treasures in heaven. And then Jesus commended the church in Smyrna for the slander they faced. He said of them in verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These words seem a little bit harsh to our ears, don't they? Because we've become so politically correct in our culture and we don't want to be accused of anti-Semitism. But remember that Jesus was a Jew and John was a Jew and they were speaking of fellow Jews. Jesus was asserting that these Jews who hated and rejected him were as much Satan's followers as those who worshipped the emperor, who were also Satan's followers. John MacArthur adds this comment here, he says, unbelieving Jews commonly accused believers of cannibalism based on a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. Immorality based on a perversion of the holy kiss with which believers greeted each other, breaking up homes when one spouse became a Christian and the other did not, atheism because, as we've already noted, believers rejected the pagan pantheon of the deities, political disloyalty and rebellion because believers refused to offer the required sacrifices to the emperor. Hoping to destroy the Christian faith, he says, some of Smyrna's wealthy, influential Jews reported these blasphemous, false allegations to the Romans. These haters of the gospel were a synagogue of Satan, meaning they assembled to plan their attack on the church, thus doing Satan's will. They may have claimed to have been a synagogue of God, of Jews, but they were just the opposite. So this church in Smyrna experienced these factors against them. Affliction, poverty and slander. And it's within that context of their suffering that this commendation of Jesus stands out. He pats them on the back. Though they experience trial and difficulty and suffering, in spite of these things... 
They are persevering and enduring in their faithfulness to the Lord. Third, let's note in this message to the church at Smyrna how Jesus gave commands, how commanded them. He gave commands with promises. There are two commands that he gave to them. For starters, he commanded the church in Smyrna not to be afraid. He said in verse 10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now here we note that after commending the believers for their endurance in the suffering that was before them and on their plate, Jesus warned them that more is coming but also promised them the strength to endure this extra trial would be given them. We remember that Jesus said in John 16.33, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Because of the victory that Jesus won, which we established earlier, these believers could take up the psalmist question in Psalm 56, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid, What can man do to me? And what are these 10 days of persecution that were about to come upon them? Most most commentators think that the expression 10 days means a relatively short time rather than a literal 10 days. It was going to be intense, but it would be short-lived. But they're not to be afraid. They're not to fear And why ought they not fear? Because Jesus is the first and the last. He died and he rose again. The second command here is Jesus commanding them to be faithful. He said in verse 10, Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Though these believers were experiencing tribulation and more was to come, Jesus encouraged them to pursue the course, to hold fast to him even to death. He also promised them a rich reward for remaining faithful unto death. We heard about the crown of Smyrna before. Jesus will give them the crown of life. John MacArthur says the crown of genuine saving faith is eternal life and perseverance proves the genuineness of their faith as they endure the suffering they would have to face. Speaking of faithfulness, even unto death, there is no more important believer to have come out of Smyrna in church history and Polycarp, who before his death became bishop of the church in the city of Smyrna. I've used the story of Polycarp before. Maybe you remember it. I'll tell it again. It was February about the year 156 AD, so about 70 years or so after this letter was written. And the bishop who had fled from the city at the pleading of the congregation was tracked to his hiding place. 
He didn't try to flee anymore. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors and asked permission to retire for prayer, which he did for the next two hours. As they travelled back into the city with him under arrest, the officer in charge urged him to recant. What harm can it do, he said, to sacrifice to the emperor after all? Polycarp refused. On arrival, he was pushed out of the carriage and brought before the proconsul in the amphitheatre who addressed him, Respect your years, swear by the genius of Caesar. And again, swear and I'll release you. Just revile Christ. Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul persisted, persisted, swear by the genius of Caesar, I will have wild beasts set upon you if you will not change your mind. Call them, he replied. The proconsul replied, since you make light of the beasts, I will have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. He still refused. Angry Jews and Gentiles gathered wood for the pile. He stood by the stake asking not to be fastened to it and he prayed. O Lord, God Almighty, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. The fire was lit, but as the wind drove the flames away from him and prolonged his suffering, a soldier put an end to his misery with the sword. This makes Jesus' words of verse 11 all the more real. We hear him say, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. See, the Bible talks about two kinds of death, doesn't it? The first death is physical death and the second death is when non-believers are faced with a Christless eternity. And so though it is that believers, especially persecuted ones, may have to suffer the first death, the physical death, they will never experience the second death. Just as D.L. Moody once said, he was born once, dies twice. And he was born twice, dies once. And that wonderful promise is given to all believers, not just to those in Smyrna. Whenever they face the reality of the first death, through illness or accident or like Polycarp and many other martyrs for Jesus' sake, the reality of the sword and the state. Well, what do we conclude? Let me suggest, first of all, that the letter to the church at Smyrna wasn't the message that most of the believers would have wanted to hear. If you were suffering 
as they were. If you'd been part of the church at Smyrna and Jesus had written to you and said, it's okay, but just keep pursuing the course. There's more to come, but just keep pursuing the course. Endure it with a strong promise that I've given you of hope even in the face of death. Would you have received this letter and its message, hold on a little longer with joy? Or would you have preferred to receive something like, don't worry, the time of persecution is past, it's all tea and scones from now on. Fact is, as they say, it is what it is. Suffering for Jesus is a mark of every true believer and church, it's stressed over and over us in scripture. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Fact is, Jesus himself experienced tribulation, poverty and slander. What the Smyrna church went through, which led to his unjust imprisonment and death. And so whatever we face, we do so with the thought that he's been through it all before us. And that's why Jesus promised a crown of life to the faithful unto death. And here we remember that in the first century a crown, a wreath or a garland was given to the victorious ones. It was a picture of those who overcome. They would receive the crown of resurrection life, these believers They may have been called upon to give their lives for their faith, but death would not be the end because Jesus conquered death. And the sad truth is that we in the Western church have little in common, however, with the church at Smyrna at this point. We may face ridicule and scorn, we may face derision and laughter, but unlikely to face serious persecution. And even if we did, the next sad truth about us is that we tend to shrink from suffering for Jesus. We'd much prefer the message of deliverance, it's okay, I'm coming to deliver you, rather than this message of endurance, hold on. We'd much rather have the situation ended and our suffering eased rather than have to keep on keeping on just because we know in the end it's worth it. The easier option of having the suffering end looks so much more enticing and so is the path that we might be, take, that we might be tempted to take to avoid persecution. And it's a path called compromise because the world is opposed to the gospel of Jesus, our tendency is to dilute the gospel, to water down the message, to lower the standards so that we don't give offence. We love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now this is not a call to go out and provoke suffering, but we must consider this. If we showed less in the way of compromise as a church and more in the way of courage and faithfulness, then surely persecution would be our lot. 
And strangely enough, when we come to consider the church at Pergamum next week, we'll meet a church that chose the path of compromise. An easier path for now, but not easier for eternity. For it is, as Spurgeon once said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross bearers here below. Ours is the privilege to believe on Jesus, but also to suffer for Jesus. The church at Smyrna would testify to that. And so would the one who wrote down the letter, John the Apostle, who likewise proved to be faithful unto death for the name of his Master and Saviour. May he, that Master and Saviour, help us to be such a church, faithful unto death. Let's pray together. We give thanks to you, Heavenly Father, for the one who is eternal and victorious, who is the first and last, who lives forevermore. We thank you too for the witness of the Smyrnan believers who endured what they had to endure without giving way, without compromise. And we thank you for the hope that we have, that though we too might suffer, that there is a crown of life, that you have that crown prepared for those who are faithful unto death. Again, we pray for believers around the world and in doing so pray for ourselves that we might be prepared and ready for the day when our lives are demanded of us. We have not yet resisted to the point of shedding our blood. Perhaps that time is coming. Grant us the courage, Lord. We have not got that courage naturally in ourselves. Enable us, strengthen us by your grace to be faithful and to endure. These things we pray in the name of our Saviour. Amen.